Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's show, a quick note about last week. In response to the Supreme Court's allowance of restrictions on the autonomy of American women, indeed to the Supreme Court allowing for rapists to choose the mothers of their children, we uploaded a short clips mini-episode featuring Barbara Kruger. If your podcatcher is set to download only one episode at a time, you may have missed Robert Adams's third visit to the program, which was last week's normal show. It's a really good one, so be sure to go back and get it. This week, it's a holiday weekend. Happy 4th of July, everybody. So this program features a conversation taped with Maya Dunitz before a live audience at the Bemis Center in Omaha last November. Dunitz was then in residence at the Bemis, putting the finishing touches on a 13,000-square-foot exhibition that foregrounds the physicality of sound through a series of installations. That show, Maya Dunitz, Root of Two, is on view now. It was curated by Rachel Adams and will remain up through September 18th. Maya Dunitz, after the break. The Summer Immersive Series is back at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Experience Leandro Ehrlich, Seeing is Not Believing, an exhibition that comes to life. Unlock your imagination and cast your reflection onto the multi-story building or become the patient in the psychiatrist's office. Add to your summer bucket list and get tickets at mfah.org slash leandroehrlich. This summer, the Getty Center is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Since the center opened to the public in 1997, the expansive campus has welcomed millions of visitors from around the world who enjoy the stunning architecture designed by Richard Meyer, landscaped gardens and terraces, including the Central Garden, designed by artist Robert Irwin, and world-class paintings, photographs, sculpture, decorative arts, manuscripts, and drawings collections. You're invited to a summer of celebrations, including an outdoor concert series, community festivals, family fun, and a special audio tour highlighting the site's history. Plan your visit, view related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists working across a variety of media. Through the artists' distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shaped the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego reopens in La Jolla on Saturday, April 9th, with the special exhibition Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s. The exhibition explores a transformative 10-year period in Saint-Fall's work when she embarked on two of her most significant series, The Tears, or Shooting Paintings, and the exuberant sculptures of women she called Nanas. Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s is co-curated and co-organized by Jill Dawsey, Senior Curator, Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, and Michelle White, Senior Curator, the Menil Collection Houston. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Arin, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. For more than 30 years, Los Angeles-based artist Andrea Bowers has made art that activates. Combining artistic practice with activism and advocacy, the work speaks to deeply entrenched inequities and the generations of activists working to create a more just world. 
This summer, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the first museum retrospective, surveying the entire scope and evolution of Bowers' production. Bringing together over 60 works and a trove of ephemera, the exhibition reflects Bowers' experimentation with a wide range of mediums and her impact as a chronicler of contemporary history. Andrea Bowers, on view at Hammer from June 19th to September 4th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. We're back. Maya Dunitz, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hi, Tyler. We're in a Kunst Hall, and you're in residence to create an exhibition for here. So I want to focus a bit on your creation of objects and installations and physical experiences that, that, that visitors have. So let's start in, in, in the simplest, most basic place, and that is that you join sound to objects. This is something that's interested a lot of sound artists and artists who work with sound for a long time now. But what about joining sound to objects and object presentation first interested you? I don't think I'm joining the sound to the objects. I think I'm finding the sound within them, maybe. I mean, in different ways. They, all these objects have a frequency, and it includes uh, you know, how they are, where they've been, where they are now. <laughs> Was there an object or another artist whose address of sound and object together interested you or provided to you a pathway from a more traditional music background to mm. a, a Kunsthalle slash museum mm. I background? love it. I love that you just practically want to like place it in the... You know, in the timeline of uh, people who've been doing. Well, I'm a history I, nerd. Uh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> because, you know, I'm a really bad name dropper, so I'm <laughs> not. I'm more awkward silence type of. Uh, <laughs> so, but I, there is a name that comes to mind. I can say has inspired my work ever since I met his, and he's alive. We were even going to try to to do a, an exhibition together at some point. But uh, his name is Tetsuya Umeda, and he's a, a Japanese artist and sound person and musician. So what in his work hmm. landed with you? Oh, many things. It, I like the, the groove of it. And also the way he, you know, he goes into places and he kind of uses what he finds. It's very site-specific, very much exploring the environment that he's in. And, and super attentive, super sensitive to the details of of uh, sound and understanding that sound is, you know, is movement in space. And uh, and of course, uh, Samuel Beckett, uh, in the way he, you know, uses syntax from other worlds in his theater or something that is beyond theater now. You know? Yeah, and, and I guess the objects emerged. Sometimes I had a sound, I heard a... A sound I didn't that didn't exist. The the instruments to produce it didn't exist, and then you have to kind of build the instrument that becomes part of the composition ah. itself. So some um, some of your interest in objects was that you could make them. Yeah, of course. I like to <laughs> just take things and connect them or take them apart and do all sorts of turn them upside down, basically play them the wrong way <laughs> or the way not not the way you would be expected to play them. You come from a kind of traditional music background. Like I notice on your on your CV, your you know, like every artist on their CV lists, you know, their education and all that. Mm -hmm. And and you start with your study of piano when you were five. Yes, definitely with Janina. Yeah, yeah. So uh, piano and flute, and we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> but what was it that took you from kind of a traditional? piano, flute, music background, a, a more traditional music education to being interested in spaces and projects that you can do in spaces like this? I guess I never stopped, right? The kids do this stuff all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Build sound installations, <laughs> noise, noise music. But <laughs> going back to your question, 
When I was around 10 years old, I had a composition teacher, and her name was Karen Rosenbaum. And she's a wonderful composer, and also kind of a mind opener. When I have a problem, I go to her, and she does one of her playground exercises or compositions on me. I perform one of them, and then mm. I, a window appears, or kind of a solution starts to seem possible. And when I was 10 years old, I went to study composition with her. I just met her accidentally in, in the area where we were living. And I asked her about the piano, how, it's, how it works. I didn't remember this. She reminded me of uh, this moment. Uh, and then I flashed back to this moment. She said, she's like, okay, well, let's find out. And we started to unscrew things and take everything apart until the piano was just in parts. And then her mother came in. She was 21 at the time. I was 10. <laughs> and her mother was horrified <laughs> what we were doing to the, the piano. So that happened quite early. And another thing was uh, Jimi Hendrix, how he can bend or all these notes that are missing between C and C sharp. And then learning about the history of piano and understanding that it's based on, on a lie, on some compromise. The notes in the, in the scale are not exactly what they would be on another, in, in true life or in, in nature. It's kind of a machine. It's a politically correct machine. <laughs> it's like, uh, it makes every note be able to communicate with another note, but without the extreme gestures of a note. Well, it's fascinating <laughs> about taking apart <laughs> pianos. I mean, did you learn? something about how pianos work from that that you hadn't known from Oh, playing? definitely. A lot of things. And I hope I will play some of them <laughs> tonight, even though I'm playing quite conventionally in this evening's recital. But later on, I mean. Right and, and much later evening. on. Because yes, much later for the, on. for the May show, yes. pianos are a big part of it. You've made a number of works, object-driven works with pianos, and you quite often subvert them, break them, make them make different sounds that they weren't maybe constructed to make. You kind of rewire them, kind of literally. <laughs> and if I were a psychologist, I might be tempted to note you have a particular relationship with the instrument and that it must die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, there were <laughs> stages like that, definitely. It's a very complicated uh, relationship. Yeah, yeah, so how would you describe that relationship? <laughs> You're right, though. No, I love this description. Do you have because you to, you came in today and actually heard them in action. Yeah, for, I'd only for I mean, everyone else. Yeah, so so you've done a number of piano installations over the years, like Five Chilling Mammoths, and you know they've been with one piano or five pianos, and anybody can see those on on YouTube and Vimeo and on your website. Well, you can see some things. You can see a video yeah. of it, but you can't really be in it. You can't understand what it's about from a video. No, that's true. It's so physical. But we will still link to your website from manpodcast.com okay, so okay, that people thank can you. see I, them if, yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> if they no, want you can, to. You can watch it and remember you're not really watching the piece. You're watching it. So, <laughs> so is there something, is there anything kind of autobiographical in your willingness to take apart pianos and, and stick a speaker or amplifier in them with the most remarkable name ever. This device, the brand name is Butt Kicker. Yeah, because uh, sometimes they also put it in the chairs in cars when people that want to uh, hear really, wow, the bass is so, so loud, my butt's moving. Well, actually, there is a butt kicker in there and it, it moves in the frequency of the music. So in your, in, your, in your treatment of pianos, <laughs> is there a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the instrument? Oh, well, there used to be some love and hate. Right now, we're totally in love. It's like, <laughs> now I'm, I'm 40, and there's a, definitely a little paradise we've come to, a honeymoon. So, uh, and, and also what I'm doing to them with the butt kickers, I feel like, I mean, these pianos were all 17 of them that the, the amazing people of Bemis have been collecting in the, over the last year and a half, they were abandoned. People wanted them out. They're like, oh, you, I can't tune this anymore. Let's, let's just throw them away. And I took all this waste. And for me, it's, uh, wow, it's, it's gold. I have this early memory of, uh, pianos people threw away on the street in south mm -hmm. of uh, Tel Aviv in Shkunat Shapira. Which is quite a mixed neighborhood. There's all these people from the Philippines, from Thailand. 
and Palestinians and really old religious Orthodox Jews and a mix. Now there's a lot of refugees there. And, and there was this piano and everyone was throwing things at it and, and playing with it in the middle of the street. It's such, there, it has a great resonance also when it's after, it's in its afterlife. So I've always uh, loved those. And then there was a butt kicker around for another piece I was working on uh, together with the two collaborators, uh, Alona Rodet and Ariela Spell. And we did a kind of a theater music visual art piece and that involved butt kickers. And there was a piano just laying around. It started from a very playful search. <laughs> So let's give people a little preview of what they will see when these 17 pianos are installed here in May. I don't know if all 17 have, are, are attached to a butt kicker. Are all 17? Yeah, 17 each of are? them has their butt kicker that just makes them vibrate. And then people will walk into a gallery space and they will see oh. these 17 pianos, some of which have these remarkable markings of their history and making like Boston piano makers that are boasting of having won medals in the 1867 World's Fair in Paris and Chicago piano manufacturers boasting of having won 50 medals around the world. These are Mm -hmm. inside the piano. You know, these aren't on on like the lid that covers the keys. These are you have to get inside. Yeah, they're tattooed. You have to get inside the instrument to see this stuff. They're totally tattooed, actually, if you think about it. Because yeah. they won, and then someone imprinted that thing on, on the metal. So seven, cool. 17 of these <laughs> butt kickers hooked up to them. How will they be installed in the gallery? And can you give us kind of a preview of what the auditory and physical experience of being... Ooh, maybe you don't want to tell yours? That's, that's fun for me. To, and you, get, yeah. you have to like, explain. How was it for you today? Damn. Well, I had, you know, I went upstairs after and pulled some stuff. So I, I, I pulled a quote of your. Well, my first thought was sometimes I felt like I was being hunted Ooh. by sound in different parts of the room. So, so what Maya does is there's a computer program yes. that, that activates the seventeen the butt kickers on the seventeen pianos, and there's a software and a sequence and a. Mm-hmm. Not an order. Order sounds too strict, but a, no, a narrative, maybe. Totally. That, that unfolds. Choreography. Or anything. Yes, that's a good <laughs> word because I sometimes I felt hunted, and then sometimes yeah. I would hear a sound thirty feet away that a piano was making over there, and all of a sudden I would go from being hunted to pursuing to try Ooh. to find that sound. Yes. <laughs> and so I had two thoughts. Okay. I remembered a, something you said in an interview, I think earlier this year where when you installed five chilling mammoths in Tel Aviv? Yeah, that was the better version, getting ready for this. This is a project Rachel and I have been working on for five, six years. So five chilling mammoths was a very important landmark in the process. So so you said about that, what would happen if they, the pianos, were set free in the wild? Mm. What other sounds do they hold within beyond the measured familiar gestures which have come to define them? Yes. And I sort of felt like I was on safari in the middle of these pianos. Right, you got it right. This this is a <laughs> this is a quote from uh, from Ran Kasmi uh, Ilan, uh, his his essay about the five chilling mammoths that we exhibited in his gallery uh, back in Israel. And and back then there were just five, so uh, it, it was still very animalistic. And now we have these seventeen. And they're a herd. For me, they're just a herd of these ancient, roaring, juicy, smelly beasts. I kept thinking beasts. of elephants, yeah. Yeah, you, you felt elephants, totally. And also because their trunk and the way they produce sound is so... Also uses the space, right? And they, they have to... Their roar has to travel far. What do you call that? The call of the elephant. It's not a roar. They, it has a name? Even yeah, if yeah. I knew the name, what the sound you just made is so much better okay. than the name. Okay. I'm not go even going to try to. <laughs> <laughs> but I also, you know, was thinking if if feeling pursued and hunting simultaneously is a little bit of a metaphor for how you think of what you do with pianos, because you're not just playing them, mm-hmm. you're pursuing them. Yeah, I mean, there is there is the relationship to the piano that is very very complicated and, and deep and we can spend <laughs> hours talking about that 
And, and in this piece, there, there was also, the, I'm using them to kind of explore another idea that has to do with the, this is the nerdy part, okay? So the, the square root of two, which is an irrational number that brought a lot of music. That's kind of what's creating their, their sound. Oh, it's, it's really magical how they're, they're reacting to the thing. And, um, and I didn't stop yet to think about like the meaning of me doing this to the piano, the way you're asking me mm. tonight. I have to think about it. So, uh, because that's a serious question. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I've been, I, I played them prepared a lot. Less tonight, maybe a little bit, but uh, inside, and uh, I've performed many pieces uh, by contemporary composers as a pianist right. that involve these extended techniques, and, and, I, and I write for them as a composer, and, uh, and it's just an awesome resonance machine. <laughs> I mean, it's, and it's amazing the way it's built, and these hundreds of tons stretched like that uh, over the the frame the steel frame and this wood that they they wetted and, and carved to make it resonate more it's it's all it's, it's magnificent work i adore the animal in itself <laughs> you're, you're, you're describing the physicality of a, a piano and one of both the characteristics of of the preview of the 17 piano work I saw today and one of the characteristics of a lot of your other work, at least for me, is that you so very often make sound physical and material. Mm -hmm. So with the 17 piano piece, one of the ways you do that is by encouraging people to touch the pianos or sit on the pianos. How do you hope that conveys the physicality of what you're doing? Well, there's another thing that I was waiting until we meet here on this, this stage to talk about. We, when, we, you know, when I played you the piece today, I wanted to ask you if you heard these kind of woo, 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 these kind of rhythms inside, you know, there's these drones, these kind of roars, and then there are all these rhythms, right? So did you hear those? Yes, because it's not, I, you know, I, I, maybe a fault in my description of... of I, I don't want to make it sound like only one piano is making noise at a time. Yeah, but that, yeah, that's there are, one part of it. Yeah, there are many pianos making mm -hmm. uh, many parts of the of the work no, sound at a time. There's no roaring together. Yeah, mm -hmm. and 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 sometimes it appears they come close to being in harmony, and sometimes not at all. Mm -hmm. And so the ear and the mind work together. To think they recognize when that moment of harmony or harmonizing, I'm sure I'm using the wrong words, are getting closer and it never quite gets, at least when I was in the room today, it never quite got there. It would, but it would get close and then it would fall away and then it would come close again. And that's part of why I use the word narrative, mm. I think. It's lovely that you just described that because I don't know if that's actually what's happening physically in what I'm sending to them. But that taps into some other idea that's going on in this, in this herd, which is they're in constant search of this middle point between them. So they're all this herd and they're hanging out together. And they each in the herd, they have different functions. So I'm not, I'm, I'm a, a mother and I'm a lover and a sister and a daughter and, and, and a friend of, and, and each of these mayas, each of these selves, of mine require different behavior, right? Or and, and now I'm in a with my herd grazing in our natural habitat all together. And how do I find a, a point of that that can have all of these frequencies of me in in it? So I'm kind of in constant. So that's what they're all doing. They're kind of positioning themselves in relation to the others, and they're in search of this this middle point, this perfect balance between them. And the beautiful thing about it is that it's, it keeps moving, also does, in real life, right? It does, it does kind of feel like they're talking to each other. You know, it's like that moment in Jurassic Park where, <laughs> where I don't remember which character, but they realize that they're talking to each other through <laughs> chirping or something. And I, I did have that. I had a flashback to like the kitchen the scene Jurassic in Jurassic Park. Park. Oh, I'm totally taking that as a compliment. <laughs> yes, really. And it's, it's great that you can hear with your body. You were talking about inviting people to sit on them and to listen with it. I mean, that's how I hear things. So I'm like very close, very sensually, I guess, and very 
I mean, it's kind of, yeah, everything that's been, I've been messing with brings the use, using, is using sound in its kind of original purpose in the world, which is to map our surrounding and where we are in relation to it, is to connect to everything that's going on and to be, to uh, transfer vibrations from one body to another. Let's talk about a couple pieces in which you do that. One from 2016 is called Sound Requires a Medium. I'm going to try and describe how the piece works. <laughs> a viewer, viewer? Yeah, okay. A viewer, you know, a participant in receiving the artwork essentially hears, air quote, hears the piece through their mouth. Through their teeth. Through their teeth. So through their teeth to their bone. I, I guess with that in mind, could you kind of de uh, quickly describe how the piece is experienced and then we can talk about the physical experience of yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, or, this is originally, um, uh, I, I saw this in, a, in a, actually in some science show somewhere with the family. And it was something that Thomas Edison invented to explain what sound is. And it, it, it was basically, it's a metal rod and you... You bite it, and then you hear from your teeth to your skull. So it bypasses this part of like going in, in, through your ear into these little hairs that move. It just goes directly into the bone. Huh. So, and there are also hearing aids that use this technology today. You know, things like braces you put that are conductive. That, wow. That vibrate, the, that enhance the volume of what's going on. And, and and for and it was it was a great way of uh, demonstrating how sound is basically vibrations from one uh, body to another it can be gas liquid or solid right it can go through air and it can pass through metal also and go directly to your bone instead of going through the air into your ear and then to your bone so when someone bites on the metal rod yes they hear a sound from my mouth to their mouth, a really intimate vocal piece. Can they identify it as such, or is, do they know that's... Yeah, they yeah, can? it's very vocal. Mm. It's like a lovely, flowery little song with some also. So is that <laughs> a good example of a work in which the physicality of sound is foregrounded about as much as you can possibly foreground it? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. I mean, the fact that it, it becomes an example of anything, you, you can, yeah, you can stick a lot of conclusions to it. But what it originally was, me stumbling upon this object, loving what it does, and thinking, mm. ooh, I could compose a song from my mouth to someone else's mouth that wouldn't be heard unless you bite it. So you have to bite the music to hear it. And I just thought it's, it's a lovely idea. And I wrote a song for that kind of a machine, and then I built that machine to make that song. And then you went into the, the exhibition and, and all the other pieces in the exhibition, there was Ticket, this kind of cloud with 11,000 earphones, and there was the first vibrating piano that was vibrating a, a piece for double bass that I, had, I yep. wrote, recorded, and played it through that. And, and all sorts of bird whistle and things that were kind of making sound in the space. And that piece was also there, but you would only hear it if you were biting on the object. So. With, of course, with a straw, you can. Uh, it was very sterile. And I want to come back to. <laughs> I want to come back to Thicket in a moment because it's really awesome. But you mentioned Thanks. bird whistle, which is <laughs> so with 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 the piano piece or sound requires a medium or some of your other pieces. You kind of have to figure out how the sound is being made. Mm -hmm. But bird whistle True. is how the sound is made if you will. <laughs> so you construct how sound is made and you show us how you do it. So maybe first, could you describe how you do that? We'll have images of it on manpodcast.com, of course. But why was showing us how the sound was made important? Okay, well, that bird whistle came to life from... I, I sat in the, the CCA in Tel Aviv, in the gallery where I was invited to do an exhibition in, and I realized that there are places in the lower gallery that you, are, you can hear things happening on the floor above, but you can't see them. Mm -hmm. And then when you go to the second floor, you see them for the first time. So I, I, I started to play with this gap. Downstairs, there are other things happening, and then I thought, oh, and then you hear the sound of a magnificent bird. 
And when you go upstairs, you realize it's kind of this futuristic machine. Uh, kind of, there's a bird whistle and a bellow stuck to its buttocks and a weight that falls on the bellow that is connected to a rope that is, goes to, to this kind of wheel. And the wheel is just wood with a little thingy. It's all very, very simple, very mechanical. There's nothing uh, digital in there. And it's like all of this, it, it kind of reminded me, it's a quote of a harp. The harp for me is a really funny instrument. It's like so heavy and you carry it around and then it goes, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> I always laugh at this, this kind of, so yeah, so that's how the bird whistle came to it. And, and then I found the, the right length of a turn for the thing to fall again, that you would forget that it ever chirped and then it would chirp and like very precise kind of, length of, of a turn, right? And from the chirp until the, the weight uh, goes back up and then falls again. It was like uh, two minutes and something, which was exactly how much you needed to forget that it happened before <laughs> and let it surprise you again. So it's a very surprising moment of hearing this bird all of a sudden. Feels like a piece you made <laughs> to show how sound is constructed, to kind of show how sound physically or mechanically works. Yeah, and, and it kind of happened through the process. It also shows that. I mean, I, don't, I didn't have that particularly in mind as the object of the piece, but it, it, it's a kind of a byproduct of this playful game. It's like the, you have this cumbersome is the word, like something that, you know, it's this very heavy out-of-date machine and for this tiny little bird sound and it's kind of also how we we use nature it's true <laughs> it's a very awkward way <laughs> these days or connect with it right we're about we said connection is the secret word of tonight so yeah you mentioned thicket a moment ago another theme I think that comes up in the work a lot is is chaos <laughs> and how chaotic sound can be deconstructed or narrowed down to something that's readily identifiable. So I'm thinking of works like Chord from 2007, which is, what is it, 40 radios? 60, 40? I don't, I don't remember how many there were. I think it's 40 it's just... or 60 radios on a board and from a yeah. distance... There's a cacophony of sound, but as you move closer to the board, you can isolate <laughs> sounds. And another work that has chaos as a part of it is Arroyica from, from 2010, and then Thicket, the year of which I failed to write down. And, and Thicket is this mass of cloud-like form of um, headphone wires and earphones at, at the end and, I mean, massive. I mean, what is it, 10,000 headphones or something? Yeah, 11,000 11,000 headphones, it's huge. 10, and it grew, it, you know, as plants do. And so sound, of course, comes through these, these, yes. these little earbuds. So was chaos an interest of yours, and then was creating works in which chaos could be dissolved and you could find something within chaos hmm. a motivating interest? I, I see your point. I see the connection between me and chaos. I'm sure David, my husband, could also <laughs> agree on that. For sure. Sorry. Sorry about that. But actually, in, in these installations, it's very organized happening, in my opinion. In, uh, especially oh. something like Thicket that involves 11,000 earphones. You have to be super organized to create that chaos but to look at the physical object it looks yeah. like yes just a, bun a bundle a, a rasta of a bundle of, of giant cloud yeah. of wires yeah that's true and it also it, it, it started it, it, we were doing a choir piece with headphones about 25 people and then ended up with this plastic bag with a mess like that <laughs> that was uh, something that happened in real life it, it was a small bag. It wasn't eight meters and six, but yeah. So there was a bit of, of chaos that sparked the plan, the planned mess. And there's a, there are 20 channels there. 
and it's there's a whole choreography of sound and and playing mostly with white noise which is also uh, chaos very wild yeah <laughs> <laughs> so when you install thicket so so a lot of your works involve software and in computers and and the digital composition and production of sound and often not always but often you don't try to hide the physicality mm-hmm. of that you know we see that equipment in or near the gallery why do you choose to make like you know lots of artists who, who, who do things with sound hide the guts behind drywall but you don't so why do you choose to share with us the electronics that help well first regarding the use of the massive use of electronics in my work that is happening thanks to amazing collaborators because I'm not a programmer and I'm not say uh, I don't know how to do these things and I come up with I hear something about a number I'm like oh that's so cool let's build a machine that does that and I come <laughs> and like I want to do this and it's a square root of two and it comes from there and, and then my friend Daniel Meir who is a sound designer and a genius programmer he tells me oh I I don't know what I don't understand and I don't know how to do that and then we end up doing it uh, somehow uh, yeah, so we've been working on these kind of machines for a long time, and there's there's a bunch of, of like I, I always go and work, find interesting partners that know things that I don't know that can can kind of stretch the the toolbox and to into new places. For so for this exhibition, I'm uh, learning a little bit of uh, Arduino programming, uh, but I, I just know how to. To, you know, copy paste and and use the thing or explain what went wrong with it. And I, I can't really create. It's they're really magnificent machines. Another amazing collaborator on the electronic side of things is my dear husband David Lemoine, who has been building uh, very crazy things, uh, machines of all sorts for different different purposes in the last decade in Paris. And uh, he's here working with me uh, at Bemis on all these things. He's worked with Arduinos before, and uh, he, he kind of made very casually made everything work in these the past two two months here in the electronic side of things. So it's really thanks to to these two amazing people that I can do it because I don't I'm not trained in that uh, side of things. I always I'm always next to it. I went I studied composition next to the sonology department. And I got to play with these patching walls oh, and and with the magnetic tapes and all sorts of uh, more like more of the the things you do with your hands. So magnet magnetic tapes and but also very brute uh, simple kind of use that I do. I, you know, we build these machines and then I record on them for hours and hours and and start to compose from there. And they're always exploring a mathematical idea, but from my very childish pers- point of uh, perceiving them, you know. I don't, I'm not a mathematician or a, or a scientist. But I have no, I, I decide supposedly as if there is a decision process there to show the guts in any, almost any occasion. And who, whoever knows me a little bit knows this. I, it's like, I'm trying to contr- to tame this part, right? To be a little, but even, you know, it's a, uh, how can you not? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's the only way <laughs> somehow for me lately. I mean, maybe it will change. Yeah, sometimes I, I manage to not to spill all the guts there. <laughs> but yeah, the electronic uh, happens in the same style. And also for me, it's really interesting to see. And it's a part, it's a beautiful part of the the piece. And al- always the, when there are aesthetic questions, the conclusion is like, okay, what's the practical solution from the options that I have, that I like? You and there, there, there have been a lot of artists who work with sound in recent years who have chosen to foreground the guts. Like I think of, like when I think of Thicket, I think of Bill Fontana's work mm-hmm. and how. So Bill Fontana's work often includes these very different form than Thicket takes, but 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 these labyrinthian interlocking wires and cords, often in bright colors, that he foregrounds. So it's something that lots of I don't know about lots, but many sound artists are also interested in now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the trend, right? It's the style of the time. <laughs> no, um, 
it's not always the case actually there are pieces where there things are. are hidden it's very sometimes well you, thought sometimes what you just is stick out your, what is in like, sometimes you just stick your wall your ear to a wall yeah exactly the, or or even with the sound requires a medium that's right it was very nicely soldered into the table and like and and then you don't see what's happening after you know the, yeah, there is some thought of... It's not all just spilled <laughs> in front of uh, anymore. Something we've talked about in a lot of these works is how you make your audience do something. Ooh, good question. You yeah. make them follow sound through an installation or you make them bite a steel or metal rod. In a work like air sculpture you're asking the audience, actually, I don't know, asking isn't quite the, quite the right word. Air, air sculpture is a, a work where you walk into kind of a dark room and Maya uses sound to guide your brain's perception of space and to help you kind of construct it. I guess this is all a long way of asking is making your audience do something rather than just sit in an orchestral hall. If, if that's a motivating factor for you. Because it seems like for, you know, if, you're, if, if you go hear the symphony for a night, you sit on your butt and you listen to the symphony. And mm -hmm. when you're working in museum and Kunsthall spaces, it seems to me like you're often finding every way you can to physically activate people. Mm -hmm. Well, generally, since the beginning of this conversation until now, I say yes to all of these ah. understandings of yours. Yes, and this one is another one. I just wouldn't... I can't say that myself, but you're totally right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yes. And I, it's like I, 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 yeah, it's very active listening that I'm inviting the visitors to be engaged in. And I also feel the people in, in the space, like in concerts and things, I feel we are all in a ceremony together, right? Mm. And the people there affect the, the music very much and and uh, of course even more in improv which i do a lot like free improvisation sessions that have a completely different set of of uh, values okay of how of the momentum in which you're in yeah so i i can feel the the ears of people and uh, for me that's yeah it's a very active mutual experience exchange of ideas even I, I, I think that probably in free improv, uh, even like thoughts uh, of people that are in the room enter the, and change the music, affect it. Uh, it's very physical for me. Do you think of sound works and installations you do for gallery spaces as having any relationship whatsoever to work you might compose for or perform in a more traditional mm. concert setting? Oh, yes, that brings me back to something I, was, I, I thought of mentioning before, which is you were talking about getting people to do so things a certain way when they come to the exhibition. Well, in, a, in an exhibition, I have very limited control over how people consume <laughs> this, this work, right? They can come in for two minutes and go out. They can talk in the meantime. They, they choose how long the experience will be for themselves and in, in what tempo to to go through it and then have to let go of a lot of control or like to treat the the whole event in an, even one one generation removed like from further up somehow uh, like in, in the eternal pulse of the situation <laughs> rather than like you know the details of they'll go from this point to that point and on the other hand, it, it leaves a lot of pl uh, space for surprises, for playfulness, for, and to build systems that, and I don't reveal all the, the ways that, you know, the things you can, it's like when you played uh, Super Mario and there were these secret places where you jump <laughs> and the mushroom appears and, uh, yeah. you know, so, and then once you learn how to play, you, you know, so there's like a whole layer of, of that, that kind of happening. If you have the, the time to just go and try to play around and jump here and there, you'll find them. I you did. You did I it today. That. I saw you. You touching them and like. Uh, oh yeah, the no, I was. I was. You know, like like with the pianos because they're really big. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they're like four and a half feet tall. You feel like, and you're hearing sound come from the other side of them, and you're feeling vibration come from the other side of them, which motivates you to go stick your head around the corner, kind of just like what you were describing with, like the Super Mario Brothers analogy is like a really good one. Oh, yeah, we were talking about those beatings that, that you hear in between them, remember? Yeah. And we didn't finish that point that, that those don't, I don't send them to the pianos. They're appearing through the connection between them in the space. That's like their, their sounds meeting creates these, these heartbeats inside. Or, uh, but that happens in, your, in our brain. That's not happening in the space. Because this, this is due to the way our, our perception works to save calories, right? To, to make... Oh. Yeah, so you hear... If, if you have these two frequencies that are very close to each other, so what your and your brain is understanding. Okay, this is a drone. It's going to go on for a while. It will remember them as the the common denominator of the two, right? That's how you say. The, I know what you mean. Even if and I, then, that's not the right phrase. And then yeah. we'll also remember the the difference between them, and that would be easier for the brain to remember that as like one high number and one one low number rather than two high numbers, something like that. So have you um, studied how our brains process sound? I'm always uh, curious about that. I mean, never-ending studying mm-hmm. process. And yeah, there is some fascination about that. There's some psychoacoustic tricks being explored inside. Wow. The last kind of thematic area I wanted to ask about was, it seems to me that your work sometimes proposes that sound is equivalent to or has a relationship to sight. Um, S-I-G-H-T, <laughs> sorry. So we mentioned Talking Wall from 2016 a moment ago. So that's the piece in which, you know, there's just a, a gallery drywall in a museum gallery, and there's a little hole. And instead of looking through the hole, the the viewer, again, the word viewer, is encouraged to or, or learns to stick their ear next to the hole to hear what's going on in the wall. Or Air Sculpture from 2013, which I mentioned a moment ago, which is a dark room where you allow sound to create perception rather than sight. So, yeah, are you interested in the relationship between sound and sight and proposing an equivalency, maybe? Or a relationship? Perhaps. Uh, (laughs) Again, I I agree to your assumptions on that, too. And there is definitely a, a gap or a difference in, you know, because when we can see up to a, a certain point when there is, where, where there is a wall, or uh, this is a, a Paulino Oliveros uh, quote, that uh, you can hear much, much further, right? If, you, if we all take now two minutes to close our eyes and just try to listen as far as we possibly can, we'll get much further than our eyes. Uh, I mean, or we'll maybe we'll see another layer of, of things. I think sound is more accurate uh, to, if you want to understand where, you're, where you are. <laughs> but then again, I, I started with the ears. Now I'm learning to see much more uh, than before. Somehow life is taking me that way. Didn't, didn't you incorporate something from that quote in an installation you did yes. for Ooh, a garden. You know it and- all. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. So it, it's, a, it's, it's a project Maya made earlier this year for a botanical garden in Jerusalem, right? Am yes. I getting this right? It was a commission for the botanical garden. So how did the- you take that quote and use it, air quotes, in that work? Yeah, well, there, that that piece had two parts, and the first part happens at, in the entrance to the botanical oops to the botanical gardens. And uh, there's like this bush, and all of a sudden you hear my voice from the bush, and it invites you to, you know, to do this little moment to take uh, two minutes and close your eyes and and exercise this uh, deep listening, first exercise of listening as far as you possibly can, and uh, and then you just do that, and and that's a little thing we can. We can all carry in our in our purse and use. It's a beautiful uh, thing to do. You can do it anywhere. You know, it's uh, just two minutes and brings in quite a lot. So I, I just recorded that in in several languages: Hebrew, Arabic, English, French. That's what I had. The ones I'm connected to. 
And people can hear it as they move through. They hear it right when they get to the garden. So it kind of uh, restarts your, the way you're listening to, your, to the space. It's a beautiful, massive garden that you, you can walk in for a long time. And then the second part happens somewhere else uh, in the trail. And you just sit on a bench and, and there is a, a sound piece that is inspired by the sounds of the place. And has some chapters and all that. <laughs> this was the last piece I wanted to ask you about anyway, because it's a work made to celebrate or mark the reopening of a public space in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. You know, because as the pandemic went along, we learned that it was safe to, more or less safe, to be outside with people. So a botanical garden was, mm -hmm. you know, like a great, great totally. benefit to us all in 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 in. in the middle of a pandemic. And so I think that, you know, maybe in 10 years and 20 years, you know, contemporary art historians will have a field day <laughs> examining and looking back at how artists thought about and engaged with the pandemic. And, and this work and this engagement in, in Jerusalem is an unusually clear example of something that's obviously about that and made to be experienced in the middle of the pandemic. Were yeah. you interested in doing something about the pandemic or doing a work that would best be received in the middle of this thing we're all experiencing? Well, again, I, I like your take on it. It wasn't something that crossed my mind back then, but it's what happened. It kind of resonates the sound of what was around. And this was the... Things get, kept getting postponed. All my, my concerts, all my shows, all the performances <laughs> and things, everything just was a very strange time. And, and this, this, kind, this little work I managed to somehow survive the, the situation. And, and yeah, and, and also kept bubbled from the, that need, exactly as you described it. Is, is it a work that will work in the same way in 10 years, or is it pretty <laughs> pandemic-y? Yeah, I think it will work. I think it's uh, it's theirs to to stay. They they decided to start a collection, and that's the first piece in their in their new collection of oh, cool. site specific artworks in the botanical garden. So, yeah, hopefully it will play again, and then we'll see. There is a part where there is I'm relating to some renovations you hear from the hill uh, far away. You can see it's very far. Uh, you, you can see the. The, the building that's going on there. And, and I, I kind of recorded my answer to that. So that'll be interesting to hear when the building is completed, you know, without the, the second, the other side of the duo. <laughs> Sound being physical again. Yes. <laughs> so I think at a moment, Maya is going to perform for us. Oh, yeah. But there's going to be an, an interlude at which people are encouraged to drink heavily. Oh, yeah, or, or lightly, or, or lightly, or just water. Or just water. A, a drink, yeah, water is life, yes. So, <laughs> so before we separate for that, let me just say Maya Dunitz, thanks very much. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this very much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.